A few years ago, there was a great disaster at sea. It was actually the biggest maritime disaster in British history that was in peacetime. A tourist boat was loaded with hundreds of holidaymakers and cars, but the doors had not been shut properly. Some of you might remember this. As it set out into the water, the water started to pour in and the boat began to sink and panic ensued. People were screaming in terror and stampeding as the happy atmosphere turned into a nightmare. All at once, one man, who was not even a member of the crew, took charge. And in a clear voice, he started giving orders, telling people where they should go. People realised that at last someone was in charge and many of them reached the lifeboats who otherwise would have died. The man himself made his way down to the hold where a number of people were trapped and there he formed a human bridge. He actually stretched his body, he was six foot three, and hanging across a flooded chasm in the darkened hull, 20 people were able to walk to safety over his back. And when the nightmare was over, the man himself was found to have drowned. He literally given his life using the authority that he had assumed, the authority by which many people had been saved. Now that is a picture of Jesus Christ on a tiny scale. Mark's Gospel, this book we've just read from, is the story that changes everything. We're meeting Jesus Christ here in the words of eyewitnesses who spent years with him. We're meeting the person who turned the world upside down and who still is turning the world upside down and the one who can transform your life too. Over the last two weeks we've thought about Jesus revealed to us in all his majesty, the mission that God the Father gives to him, the beloved Son, and his meekness, how gentle and obedient he is, and when he was driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, keeping God's commands. We then thought last week about how Jesus is kingly. We thought about the summons of the king. He calls all people to repent, turn their life around, and believe the good news. We thought about the authority of the king. He has authority over evil spirits in the spirit world. He has authority intellectually. But he also has authority over sickness and, and death. And we thought about the call of the king. How he goes to men who are f- mending their fishing nets by the side of the lake, the sea, where they've worked their whole lives, their whole family has worked. And the king calls and they follow him and leave everything and risk all to follow Jesus. Now these opening chapters of Mark's Gospel are a bit like a family photo album. If you've ever looked through one of those. I don't know if photo albums still exist, do they? Some virtual form, probably. Imagine you've got snapshots of Jesus' life, but they've been arranged very carefully to to build a picture of what he is really like. Now what do we really see here today? Is Jesus' immense power and authority which he uses to serve other people. We've got two pictures of Jesus this week and we find two things. You ready? He's got the power to make us clean and he's got the authority to forgive our sins. The power to make us clean and the authority to forgive our sins. So I want to pick up the story here in chapter 1 verse 40. Have a look there. And here we see this man with leprosy who comes to Jesus falls down on his knees and begs him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now you have to understand, this isn't just another healing story. It's much deeper than that, because of what it meant to be a leper in those days. Leprosy, 
uh, as defined in the Bible, is, is, is could, a term that covers a range of different skin diseases and conditions. It could be one of over 70 different things. But in God's word in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, a leper, who was one afflicted by these, these skin conditions, was seen to be someone who was ritually not clean. Like someone who, uh, we would say, physically not clean, has to be kept in a... A, 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 an environment that's cordoned off and safe and people can only go in there with a hazmat suit until they're, cl- they're not contaminated anymore. Someone who's been maybe radiation contaminated or, or infected with a gravely infectious disease. That kind of image. That's what's going on here but in the religious sphere. So these lepers, <coughs> these people afflicted with these skin diseases were cut off from society. They were kept away. They were considered to be a source of uncleanness. So it would work like this. If a leper was walking by and someone was standing under a tree, that person would be made unclean just because the leper had come too close. So people shunned them and wanted to stay away from them. In fact, in the society, it was required that the leper would be no closer than 50 steps away. 50 steps. And they'd have to wear tattered clothes so you could see them from a long way off. Oh, they're there, right, legged. They, would, they were considered to be able to impart their impurity even to objects that were close to them. And so they were confined by strict rules away from the community. They were not allowed into the temple where God's presence was. They weren't allowed into the family home or any social gathering. A little bit like if those of you who remember that when AIDS first broke, the stories about AIDS in the 1980s, people were terrified about AIDS. It was the incurable disease. It was this disease that could destroy anyone. And people were terrified of AIDS sufferers. And AIDS, many AIDS sufferers died very lonely deaths because people didn't want to go near them. They were pariah. You see, being a leper in that culture made you a prisoner, cut off from all normal life. This isn't just a description of an illness. It's a description of a sentence. A sentence that robbed the leper of his name, his occupation, his family, his fellowship. They were like the living dead. It was seen as a living corpse. So just imagine for a moment the emotional impact, the social impact on somebody who was afflicted with this disease and couldn't be cured. So this leper has heard about Jesus and he takes a big risk here because he's breaking through the barriers, he's gone beyond where he should, he's breaking through the taboos And he comes right into where Jesus is. And he falls down in front of him. And this is his big chance. It's like someone's reaching out for a lifeline and they've only got one opportunity to grasp it. He could get into enormous trouble for this. Jesus could shun him and push him away as everyone else does. But he does it, this man, because he has faith. Where do I get that from? Look at what he says to Jesus. We find the verse... Verse 40, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now he doesn't say, you could ask God to make me clean. You could pray for me. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See the difference? Compare this with another famous Bible leper. In 2 Kings chapter 5, back in the Old Testament, there's a famous leper called Naaman. He's a commander of the army of a king the king of Aram, not from Israel, but one of the neighbouring nations. And he's a great man, one of the great ones. And and he's highly regarded, and and 
he wins every, every battle for his king. He's a valiant soldier. His men will follow him everywhere. But this guy, Naaman, has one big problem, which is that he has leprosy. And uh, he hears about the prophets in Israel and that there's a chance that someone could cure him. So he begs his, ki- his master, the king, will you, will you please write to these people and ask them for the cure? So the king says, of course I will. You're my, you're my top soldier. So he sends a letter and a load of gold and silver and clothing, big gift. And the letter that he sends to the king of Israel reads this. With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And how does the king of Israel respond when he sees that letter? He says, he, he tears his clothes. <laughs> that's not Superman. That's, oh dear, I'm in trouble. He says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a fight with me? You see, only God can cure leprosy and everybody knows that. Yet this guy has faith, somehow, that Jesus can do it. He comes and falls on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And how will Jesus respond? Now, I just want to notice three things quickly in this episode. The touch, the cleansing, and the command. Firstly, the touch. Here's Jesus' response. It's not one of fear and loathing, but only compassion. And he immediately says, I am willing. I am willing. Now, there's a, there's a variant here in the, in the text. And you can see that because it says Jesus was indignant in our church Bible. But it has a little footnote that says many manuscripts say Jesus was filled with compassion. And perhaps your Bible says Jesus was filled with compassion. So which is it? The answer is we're not 100% sure. Most of the manuscripts we have say that Jesus was filled with compassion at this point. But there is a very important early one that says Jesus was indignant. He was indignant. And there, have, there are other times where Jesus sees someone in great distress or someone grieving. And he's indignant at what sin and death and sickness do to this world. Not indignant at the person, but at what's happening to them. So he may be indignant here, but he does respond with compassion because... He not only says, I'm willing, he touches him. He reaches out and just touches him. Now that's a small detail, but it's very important. Why touch? You know, Jesus doesn't need to do that. Most of the time he heals just with a word, even with his mind. The touch is significant because it shows the heart of Jesus Christ. He's a man full of compassion. He's not detached. He's not remote. He's not aloof and untouched by human suffering. He is accessible. He comes near. And even to this person who has not felt a human touch for many years, he knows what that guy needs. And that touch was probably the most beautiful thing the man had felt in his life. Now Jesus is God breaking into our world announcing that the kingdom of God is near. So is this how you see God? Friends, do you realise that God wants to love you, to know you, to encourage you, to touch your life? Second thing we see is the cleansing. It says in verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. He's totally clean. His skin is like a newborn baby. This shows that Jesus himself 
cannot become unclean like everybody else would. He's not compromised by the presence of the leper. Even by touching him, Jesus still is not unclean. Jesus doesn't need to be made fit for the presence of God. Why is this? Because he himself is the source of all cleanness. He's the one who determines what it means to be fit for God's presence. Anyone else would have been defiled, but not Jesus. A touch from him, and the leper is made clean. See, the holiness of Jesus Christ is actually contagious. The cleansing. And thirdly, the command. Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 43. Jesus sends him away at once with a strong warning. It's very stern. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, why this? Jesus is telling the man, you've got to go through the official system. You've got to go through the official channels for your own sake. You see, in that culture, the only person who can officially declare that the guy has been cleansed and can be welcomed back into society is the priest, speaking in the name of God. The priest can't cleanse anyone. They can just assess them. And then the man gets to offer some sacrifices, and when he's been through a period of time, would be welcomed back. The man has to keep Moses' command in order to be seen to be clean so that he can be restored to society. Until that time, he's in limbo. But what does the man do? See the gracious word of Jesus. Not only has he healed him and restored him, he now tells him, you know, go through the proper channels. What does this, this stupid man do? Verse 45. Instead of obeying Jesus... He went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. I think this is astonishing. You know, Jesus is this person of immense authority, isn't he? He can command evil spirits to go. He can heal with a word. He gives this man a free choice. And lo and behold, the man totally disobeys Jesus. Even though he owes Jesus his life, he disobeys him and goes around shooting his mouth off about what's happened. And notice what happens as a result of this. This is amazing. Verse 45. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. See what happened? Jesus has now traded places with the leper. He's traded places with him. Who's the one now who's in lonely places and can't come into town? Jesus. Where's the leper? He's down at the pub telling his mates about how he got healed. Now that already is a picture of the good news. Jesus Christ is willing to do this for an undeserving person to take their place. To take their loneliness and disgrace upon himself so that they can be welcomed (coughs) in. Just a little picture. The power to make anyone clean is in his gift. The second thing we learn is that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive our sins. Have a look at this next story, chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. What an amazing story this is. Jesus had moved from his hometown of Nazareth. Now his home is in Capernaum, where some of his followers live. He lives there. Some scholars even believe that the house that he's teaching in is actually Jesus' own house and that it's his roof that gets damaged. But imagine the scene. He's already said, I'm not just here to gather a crowd, I'm here to announce the kingdom of God. He's been 
zooming around here, there and everywhere, telling, announcing what God, that God's kingdom is near and explaining, teaching what it's like. He's, he's very, very clear. He's not just here to do deeds. He wants his word to be known so that people can understand the context of the deeds. And Jesus is here and he goes and he's teaching. And, he's, and by now, you know, he's so famous. Words got out. People are pressing in. They come to the house. They come in. They fill the house. It's absolutely crammed. Standing room only. Everybody's sort of, it's like a, a, a gig, you know, and they've got their arms at their side and they can't get in. But still there's more people outside and they're craning, they're trying to hear him. It, it, it's, it's a scene of drama and Jesus is there in, in the house teaching and speaking as loud as he can so that even the ones on the outside can hear. And there they are and they're hearing this incredible teaching of Jesus. And then all of a sudden there's a noise and, and you can hear footsteps on the roof, which is a flat roof. And there you can see, you can hear banging and then there's a, a little bit of light comes in and a load of dust and soil falls down on the people underneath. And they're thinking, what is going on here? And gradually the hole gets bigger and four guys have come and they are going to get their friend in no matter what. Doesn't matter that this is Jesus' finest lecture. They're going to break it up because they've heard that he can heal and they want their friend to get healed. So they've carried him there on a mat. His paralysed friend. And there they are with, I don't know, spades or bit sticks or with their own bare hands breaking open the roof to try and get him in. It's an amazing scene. Now the houses in those days, the scholars, people have done archaeological work at Capernaum and they find that these houses were made of stone had a stone staircase up the, time, up the side. But the roof actually was basically wooden joists with sticks and branches laid on top and then on top of that thatch and then on top of that soil and mud that was baked hard so that it prov- provided a covering. So it, it's not like you're thinking of your slate roof in your terraced red brick house in Manchester. This is a, a roof that it would be easy to break through but still expensive to repair. And there's Jesus, and here they are, and they've, they've got some ropes from somewhere, and they lower this guy down onto the floor, and there he's lying there, looking up, and Jesus looks at him. Now, there are three twists in this story, three twists in the tale, and it sounds a bit like a dad joke. Have you heard about the roof, the reply, and the religious experts? The roof. What is this going on about this roof? What, what is this... Look at Jesus' response to this reckless property damage. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he spoke. He, he, sees, he doesn't just see a massive repair bill, rain coming through, and how hard it is to get a good roofer in Capernaum. He doesn't just see that. He primarily sees their faith. Now, what do we learn about faith from that? Faith is active. It is not the passive standing back and observing of the crowds. It is the risk that the men take to trust Jesus. Imagine if he didn't heal the guy. What have they got? They're not going to pay for the roof bill. They're going to get, you know, taken down the police station. But they are going to take the chance and break through to the presence of Jesus. And this paralytic, this paralysed man, he's in on it as well. He wants to be there. And he looks in Jesus' eyes. And and everything in him wants Jesus to say, you're healed, get up. He wants to hear that Jesus will heal him, but 
you know what? Jesus' reply is not what anybody expects, is it? Look at verse 5. He sees, he sees their faith and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Forgive his sins? The dude can't walk. He's paralysed. Can't work. Jesus, with respect, do you need to get your priorities right? Yes. He has. That's the point. Jesus is using this situation to show us that our priorities are wrong. Now the point here is not that all sickness is directly related to sin in some way. The Bible doesn't teach that. The story of Job, who's afflicted with boils from head to foot and whose life gets completely destroyed, is the story of Job's three friends, so-called, who try and find out what Job did to make it all go wrong. And the answer is, it wasn't about what Job did. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 9. Some people bring a blind man and say, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? He's been blind since birth. And Jesus says, neither he nor his parents sinned. It wasn't about that. This is so that God's glory could be shown in his life. Now, some illness is directly related to sin. We know this from common sense. Uh, Sexually transmitted diseases are often the result of sin, sinful choices. Uh, Some addictions lead to immense physical problems. Some addictions, some sins lead to directly to, to physical problems, don't they? Indirectly, you know, a life lived without God at the centre will suffer the effects on the body. People who live with a guilty conscience for years often makes them ill. People who live with anger for years and years, they're angry, they won't let it go. It consumes them physically. There's a strange link between the mind and the body and we don't fully understand it. And ultimately the Bible teaches that in the big picture, the reason why anybody in the human race ever gets sick is because of sin. But it's not a one-to-one correlation. The point that Jesus is making here is not that this guy was particularly evil and therefore he got paralysed. The point is that there is something even more important, even more vital and necessary to you and me than our physical health. There's something even more important than that. What is it? It's being forgiven by God being forgiven so that you can be right with God. Now this is radical because I think we tend to believe that our biggest problems are the things that are happening to us right now. Usually if we're in ill health, we think that's our biggest problem. But according to Jesus, our biggest problem is not our health or our circumstances, it is our sin. So what this means is that if you are struggling with with physical illness or distress, the most important outcome would not be that you were made better, but that you came to know God through it. Now that flies in the face of everything our culture says about suffering. Our culture says suffering's the big argument against the existence of God. But you know, the Bible teaches that suffering is an opportunity to get to know God, to get the most important thing clear, that I need to be right with God. C.S. Lewis, professor of literature at Oxford and then Cambridge, wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, we can rest contented in our sins and in our stupidities 
and anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. Suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So let me ask, has God ever shouted at you through your pain? Have you heard him? Has he got your attention? Because the reason why God allows these things into our lives, suffering, illness and pain, is to get our attention. Are you listening? Now Jesus certainly got everyone's attention with this reply. Son, your sins are forgiven. And then there's a third twist in the tale because he has really got the attention of one group of people in the room, the religious experts. Have a look at verse 7. We see their response. In fact, we'll start at verse 6. Some teachers of the law, religious experts, were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they see Jesus' words, they they immediately do the computation and they realise that this is tantamount to an enormous claim about himself. Jesus implicitly is claiming to be God. Well, why is that? Let me just put it like this. When somebody sins against you, they have cost you something. Imagine somebody breaks your phone or they steal your purse. You have two choices. You can either make them pay for it Or you forgive them. And forgiveness means you have to pay for it yourself. You pay for the phone to be repaired. You pay for the replacement of the purse. And this works on the emotional level just as much as it does on the the matter of our property. If somebody injures you, wounds you, betrays you, speaks ill of you, uh, insults you, you, they have incurred an emotional debt to you. And you can either make them pay for it by making them suffer in return or let them off, which means you've paid for it yourself. That's what forgiveness means. So you can only forgive somebody if if the debt is against you or if you are willing to pay someone's debt for a third party. Okay? So what does it mean? What is Jesus claiming when he says to this man, who he doesn't know, your sins are forgiven? All of them. Every moment of every day, of every week, of every year of his life, no matter what he'd done, his sins of commission, things he'd deliberately said or done or thought, his sins of omission, the things he'd failed to do that he should have done, the whole mountain of sin that every one of us builds up and adds to like a horrible mountain of trash. Jesus says, I just forgave the whole lot. Free to go. It means that all the sins the man had committed through his entire life, Jesus has just forgiven. Now, what does that imply? It means that Jesus is basically saying, all those sins are against me, because I can forgive them for you. And there's only one being of whom that can be said to be true. It's the Creator. The Creator, because we're all his possessions, and any sin against the creation is an offence against the majesty of God. That is why King David, who committed some of the most heinous crimes in the Old Testament, 
He coveted one of his soldiers' wives. Her name was Bathsheba. She was a great beauty. He invited her to his palace. He got her drunk. He had sex with her, discovered she was pregnant, and to cover it up, he arranged for her husband, who was a loyal soldier, to be put on the front line and killed in action. He lied, he committed adultery, he coveted, he broke his promises. And after all of that, David was confronted with what he'd done, and he broke his heart with remorse, and he repented and came back to God, and he wrote one of the most powerful poems of repentance ever been written, Psalm 51. And in this psalm, he says to God, against you... You only have I sinned. What? What about Uriah, the guy that got bumped off? Well, he did sin against him. But David sees the theological point that any sin against the creation is a sin against the creator who is to be forever praised. Against you I've sinned. All of this was against you. So, you know, these religious experts, they're actually right. They're right. They've got completely correct theology. Those who know their Bible well know that only God can forgive or have the right to forgive. And they're absolutely right about this one thing. Jesus is making an audacious claim to deity. Jesus is saying the things that only God has a right to say. He's asserting the authority to forgive all our sins. So they conclude he's blaspheming. But, you know, they may be right with their theology, but they're wrong with their Christology. Christology is the knowledge of Christ. You can be right with the theology and completely wrong with your Christology because they've got Jesus wrong. He not only has the authority to forgive sins because he is God, come as a man, but he has the means to pay for sins as well. He has the means to pay. And you have to wait to the end of the book to find out what that is. It ain't a credit card. It's a cross. He has the power to cleanse us. He has the authority to forgive our sins. What is the real world value of these two stories for you and me? What we need to see is that these two men are pictures of what we we are like. We're all like them spiritually. You may not have leprosy. You may not be paralysed. But you are unclean unfit to be in God's presence and you are imprisoned by your sin confined by it unable to help yourself and need to be forgiven they are pictures of how we all are by nature according to the Bible this is what we are all like we're defiled by our impurity we're unclean and we're paralysed by our sin we don't choose the right thing even when we do a good deed our motives are, are wrong Let me ask, have you ever realised that? It's the first step on the road to recovery. You know, you and I are not blank slates. We're not basically good people. According to the Bible, we are defiled and we're paralysed by sin. And the only way we can be rescued is if Jesus Christ comes into our life and speaks to us the way he did to these two men. Now what this shows us is that Jesus is absolutely wonderful. He's so kind. He's so compassionate. He reaches out even to the person that everyone fears and loathes and excludes. Jesus is powerful and great. He can reach out and touch and deal with the worst of sickness and evil. But, it's an important point here, Jesus is only available to people who admit that they are a moral failure. He's only available to those who will come in faith 
We need to see that we're a moral failure before we can become a Christian. All through Mark's Gospel, we see people coming and getting excited about Jesus. Crowds rushing wherever he is. There's a rumour and all they go there and excited. They're excited about Jesus and yet they miss the reality of who he is. They gather, they hunt him down. They want things from him. They want healing. They want miracles. They want emotional comfort from him. They get excited. They're amazed, astonished. They love being around Jesus. But in the end, they're not really changed. They did not enter his kingdom. At the end of the story, do you know how many true followers Jesus had when all the crowds had dispersed and all the dust had settled? Remember, Jesus fed thousands of people on several occasions. Remember that so many people were following him that he had to get away to try and stop causing chaos. How many people were left after it all died down, do you think? 120. Only 120 people actually followed him out of all those thousands. There is a huge difference between being in the crowd and being a disciple. And that means then in a room of this size with this many people, and I don't know you all, some of you here are just in the crowd. You're just in the crowd. You're just here. You're looking on, but you're not prepared to follow Jesus Christ because you don't, know what, you don't like what it's going to cost you. It might be that you are a young person from a Christian family. You've been brought up on the Bible with your mother's milk. You kind of know all the stories but you're not actually following Jesus Christ. You're still in the crowd. That means you're still a leper. You're still paralysed. It might be somebody who's come into the sphere of the church and you kind of like being around it. Maybe you like the music. Maybe you like the people. They're quite warm. You like the free lunches, a lot of free food at Grace Church. There's something about it. Maybe you even like hearing preaching. But you've never actually committed to following Jesus Christ and rested your life on him in faith. You know, you're still on the outside. If you don't think that you are a moral failure, then you are not a Christian. And say it again. If you don't think that you're a moral failure today, you are not a Christian. And as a preacher, I have to ask you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to think again. To look again at your condition, to realise you are hopelessly lost and you will be cut off from him, from him for eternity. There will be no turning back after you've died. And come to him now in humility, saying, sorry Lord, I am a moral failure and only you could turn my life around. I've got nothing to bring. I'm like the leper. Come on your knees. I'm like the men who, you've got to be like the men who break through the roof. Will you come today? And if you want to speak to someone and talk about this through after the service, either myself or one of the ladies at the church would love to talk to you. But I want to finish with a word to Christians, to those who know they follow Jesus, who know they're a moral failure and who are trying to walk with him. Let me say now, do you see now that Jesus Christ has forgiven all your sins and has cleansed you? Therefore, All the really big things in life have now been taken care of. You see that? So don't let other things in life crowd that out. All the really big things have been taken care of. Your sin, your problem with God, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. It's all been taken care of. 
Don't let other things in life crowd that out. You've been cleansed. That means, the New Testament says, don't be like the pig or the dog. These are rather gra- graphic images, but it comes from the New Testament. The pig loves going after it's been washed and rolling in the mud again. The pig loves rolling in the mud, get filthy again. Or the dog. You know what some dogs do when they've thrown up on the floor? They go back and eat it. I've seen this happen, and I don't want to see it again. New Testament says if you've been washed, cleansed, Christian friend, don't be like the pig or the dog and go back to your sins. So let me ask, are you a believer, a follower of Jesus, who is currently rolling in the mud or going back to your vomit? Repent. Turn to him again. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And what this means, in closing, is that all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. Our future is secured. Horatio Spafford was a prominent American lawyer and a committed Christian. He was a wealthy man. His family decided to take a holiday in Europe. This was in the latter part of the 19th century. He sent his wife, Anna, and their four daughters on ahead. He stayed back in America to finish business and joined them later. November 22nd, 1873, they were crossing the Atlantic. The ship was struck by an island sailing vessel and 226 people lost their lives. All four of the daughters were drowned. Anna Spafford survived. She was rescued. She got to England and sent a telegram to Spafford with these words, saved alone. Spafford then sailed to England, going over the location of his daughter's deaths, and he wrote this hymn on the journey. When peace, like a river, attendeth my my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Now, why was he able to write those words on that occasion? Here's the theology, listen to this, verse 3 of Spafford's hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray.